Let's pray before I begin. Lord, we thank you that your word is something that is with us always and that we can refer to and use to lift up your name, to build ourselves up, to move forward in our lives and to bless others. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, who's been paying attention over the last couple of weeks? Who wants to admit they haven't? No, don't. We can pray for you afterwards, that's fine. But we've been talking about a dilemma that Paul has been facing in the Galatian church. And it's basically, to make it really simple, based on a disagreement. And he has come to speak to the disciples in Jerusalem to see if he can resolve this disagreement and make sure that everybody is in line with God's gospel message. Has everybody got that? Because okay, it's time for coffee. And one of the, one of the main thrusts of his argument is the, the fact that unity for the church is an important thing because this in the early days of the church threatens to split the church into two groups. And so unity becomes quite important to Paul. And he knows it's, it's, it's what you'd call a catchphrase. Who knows that unity is important? You know, it, you can do things when you're unified. So, I mean, it's even in the Bible. I mean, Genesis chapter 11, verse 5. But then the, the Lord came, to look, came down to look at the city and the tower people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. So we can see that from this scripture, God not only recognizes the power of unity, but he's into it. He thinks, that he, obviously, from that, he says, after this, what, what's this? After they've built a tower? Anybody can do that. Well, a bit of nous and bricks and mortar, or in their case, tar. It's after they've discovered the power of unity, nothing is impossible. So obviously God has recognised this power and, and he, he's happy about it, isn't he? If we look at the next verse, verse 7, it says, Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. You'll think, well, hang on. Something's... Not right here. Surely we've just heard that unity is really powerful and that God recognises that this is an awesome thing and the next minute he says, whoop, let's go and get rid of that, shall we? So unity is a bit more than just plain togetherness. It's actually powerful if we get together. But there's got to be more to it than that because in this case, God obviously doesn't want them to be unified. You've got to ask yourself why. What's wrong with building a tower? Well, I should say I'll leave you to read the rest of Genesis 11 yourselves and find out. But the, the actual problem was that God had a plan. If we go back, in fact, further back in Genesis, um, I've skipped one here, Michelle, so 
I'll go back to the other one. Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. And yet here we have these people who have stopped, built a city and are building a tower to heaven. And they've decided they're not going to spread out throughout the earth. They like it there. It's in the valley of Shinar. It's fertile. It's really good. They've said, okay. Um, when God said, go and fill the earth, he obviously meant to just fill this valley. And so we're going to stop. And we're not going to fulfill the promise that he gave to Adam to actually fill and subdue the whole earth. And so they were actually unified, but they weren't obeying God. And so God, it's, it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 8, which is the slide before, in that way the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That's why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. So we can see that unity is important, but what's more important is that we actually obey God. That we actually, fall, not because he's nasty and says, well, you were naughty and disobeyed, so I'm going to punish you. Because that's not God's heart. God's heart was that for man to fulfill his destiny, he had to cover the globe. He had to subdue the whole planet. It wasn't just enough to find one valley that they thought was a bit nice, settle there, and then start building towers to try and reach heaven. That wasn't part of God's plan. So togetherness is not enough. God wants more. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you'll be happy to know that God doesn't come amongst us and confuse us anymore when it comes to our languages. And he doesn't directly interfere and tell us off if we're not fulfilling the destiny he has for our lives. Who's happy about that? Because we're all guilty. I don't think we're all fulfilling the destiny God has for our lives 100%. I could be wrong, and I apologise if I am. But most of us fall short of what God has planned for us. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross and the fact that we live in an age of grace, God actually lets us get away with it, often to our detriment. So if we move our attention back to the book of Galatians, because that's where we started, we actually discover that Paul is having the same problem. There's a group of people who are unified about something but they're unified about the wrong thing. Now the question that immediately comes to mind, for me at least, is how do we know which group is right? Because who knows, there are lots of people around the world today who are unified about particular things. And they're all there telling us that they're right. How do we know who to believe? How do we know what is... <laughs> It's a very good answer, that. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people that that is the appropriate response. Probably accompanied by a suitable gesture. So, we've got Paul here with a dilemma. He has to convince the apostles that his argument is the correct one. And then he has to show them that this is the way forward. So how does he do that? Well, first of all, he tests the disciples. Notice that in Galatians 2, verse 3 to 6, 
He starts off by telling us, they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even that question only came up because some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you, and the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. See, Paul came to these people, and he presented his argument, and he tested them. He brought Titus along, because Titus was a Gentile. He had no Jewish background. And they could see that God's message was such that to circumcise Titus was unnecessary in God's eyes and therefore they agreed it was also unnecessary in their eyes. Now once Paul had got their agreement, we have to ask ourselves the question, why did they agree? I mean, was it just because we know Paul was good with arguments? Had Paul convinced them about something that had come from his heart or was it actually from God? How do we know? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of important points, but I'm only going to cover one today. Their acceptance of Paul's ministry was key to understanding, even today, how we look at our Christian faith. Because the implications of what they understood are still true today. And they're actually really hard to grasp because of the way we're built. Who knows that we all have different personalities? Who knows that some people like partying and, and confusion and loud noises and, and excitement and stuff? Who are those people? You see, and there are some people who are quiet and reserved and don't like the limelight. And if I asked them to put up their hands, nobody would move. <laughs> there are some people who like things in order. In fact, their life is very hard to, to live if it's not in order. And if I asked those people to raise their hands, they would probably work out who was the tallest and do it in order of that, <laughs> in line, just so that things look neat and tidy. In fact, they're probably all sitting in the same row. Um, and so th there's, th and there's just, just some people who don't care. And uh, uh, th in fact, 68% of people fall into the, eh, yeah, whatever, category of personality. And... Uh, I'm afraid I, I tend to be in that camp myself. You know, we tend to roll with life, you know. We can do a bit of excitement, but then if we have to sort of sort things out, we can usually find somebody who's going to sort it out for us. And, uh, you know, the world's a, it's a great place most of the time, and if it isn't, then so we move on. Um, and so th there's, there's a difference in how people react to things, but one of the things that most all of us, like is routine we are creatures of habit you know we get up at the same time every morning during the week we eat the same foods we we, do, we have a routine because it's easier that way it saves a lot of thinking power 
um, and it makes our lives easier. And so what we're dealing with here is a group of people who have come to faith in Christ and they've decided that life needs to be easier. And what happens, and even today in churches this, this happens, when we look for things to be easy, we tend to put rules into place. Because it's a lot easier to control what happens if we have rules. Now, rules aren't a bad thing. We have a rule that our service starts at 10 o'clock. And that's, that, that makes things easier because it means that people generally turn up at about 10 o'clock. Um, and that we know when to start the music and we know it gives us an anchor to work out how to run our service from. Rather than me just turning up at 11 and saying, where's everybody gone? I, I, was, I had a great message, but you, why did you all start at 10? I thought this was... It would be very confusing, wouldn't it? And so we, we have rules of sort. But some people, once they get comfortable with rules, decide that the rules are more important than the actual reason we're here. And this is what this group of people had done. They had recognised that a relationship with Jesus Christ gave them salvation and that a relationship changed their lives and moved them into a, a different place at a relationship with Jesus himself. But then they'd worked out that having rules was a lot simpler way of doing things. And because they'd had rules in the past, they actually fell back on those and said, okay, let's follow these rules and we'll actually make these rules more important than a relationship with Jesus. And this is how we can tell when we make decisions in life, especially about our faith, what the right decision is and what the wrong decision is. See, what Paul had recognised and what the disciples in Jerusalem had recognised was that it wasn't enough just to have togetherness. It wasn't enough just to have unity. We had to have unity while we were fulfilling God's plan for us. And where does God's plan come from? The God. If we, run a, if we follow a plan that doesn't come from God, guess what? It's not from God. <laughs> you want me to repeat that? <laughs> so what happened was, these, these false brothers had come in to convince people that their rules were actually more important for, their, for salvation than the grace of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was upset, not because they'd had a different idea, not because he didn't like rules, because the rules, instead of helping, were going to enslave people. Because from a, from a, a Jewish perspective, they had lived... 400 years under the rule of law, the law of Moses. And the interesting thing that we read throughout the gospel is that the law didn't work. It was broken. And in fact, a lot of that time was actually just God showing us that living by that law was impossible. And that he had the answer, but he was going to provide it through Jesus. And so a lot of people in the church then and in the church today don't like the idea of 
freedom because it reeks of revolution sort of chaos you know if you give your kids freedom the house is a mess in five minutes and people think that if if Christians are given freedom in Christ then there's going to be a mess it's, it's going to be hard to control yeah exactly and so people get frightened and guess what they make rules and they say look Brendan I know you're excited about your relationship with Jesus but are you circumcised? <laughs> this is a theoretical question. <laughs> Don't answer that. <laughs> or, look, I'm sorry, but your salvation is in doubt because you don't speak in tongues. Or, uh, I couldn't help but notice on the drum, you're just wearing a T-shirt. I don't believe God respects people who aren't dressed properly and I'm afraid that's not up to God's dress code. So I, I really feel that your salvation is in doubt here. And uh, in fact, Nathan, the same thing. And, and possibly even Mike. Mike's out the back. See, he's not even here, that's even worse. <laughs> and see, churches put in these rules. And people fall for them because we like rules. Much as though we think we like to be free, we like rules. It's much easier for me to say, when you come to church, let me give you a hint. It's better if you wear a shirt and tie and a jacket because God really respects that and if you wear a shirt it means you're showing respect for God and God loves that and in fact if you come up the front for salvation I won't pray for you unless you have a suit and tie on because I believe that it's disrespectful to God and he wouldn't accept you if you weren't dressed properly now you're looking there and you're thinking what a stupid rule there are churches around this world who have that rule And you see, and they're unified behind it. They're to get there, they're all in agreement. They sit in their huddle with all their suits on and say, yep, we're good. Yeah, we're pleasing God because he likes it, my tie. And the thing is that it's not a question of us laughing at people who have different ideas to us. Because we have to recognise that we have strange ideas in other people's eyes. Even just speaking in tongues is an anathema. Look that one up. Um, to a lot of Christians. They actually do not see what the need is to speak in tongues. They do not see that it's even biblical or or, or godly. Some people would say it's satanic. And they have a rule that it's not allowed in their church. And you sort of think, well, why is that? It's because they're afraid. And it's also because of the... the, uh, attitude of a lot of Pentecostal Christians because we get the attitude that well I speak in tongues therefore I'm a better Christian than you are really Pentecostals can be unreasonable as well we thought we were all perfect didn't we and can you imagine how somebody feels when you walk up to them and and with an air of superiority say well never mind it's okay that you don't speak in tongues Um, I'll intercede for you because I do, and therefore you can see my halo glowing as I speak. Rubbish! It doesn't make Pentecostals better Christians. In fact, to a large degree, I think that we should be ashamed of the fact that we're speaking in tongues and we're not actually necessarily doing any more for God than any other Christian. 
Because in a sense, we have an advantage, if you like, if, if we have a, a direct, uh, an angelic language that we can pray more easily, that we can, we can pray unceasingly without having to necessarily even think about what we're praying because our heart is expressed, then that actually gives us an incredible example that we waste, uh, advantage that we're wasting. In fact, looking at that, I'd say that most Pentecostals are probably worse Christians than people who don't speak in tongues. Because we have the wrong attitude about it. We, we think we're good. Because we can do something that other people can't or are too blind or stupid to, to get involved in. What sort of Christian attitude is that? No wonder people think that Pentecostals are sometimes a bit up themselves. It's not a rule. The salvation that we achieve through Christ is through Christ alone. We cannot do anything to make ourselves holier in the sight of God other than to have a relationship with his son Jesus. So we should remember that. So the point of my rant about speaking in tongues is that if we look at a choice, we need to look at what that choice gives us. Because Jesus Christ came to set us free. Now that doesn't mean he came to abolish the law. In fact, what's actually happened to the law is that it's been fulfilled. Those mosaic laws haven't gone away. They're not irrelevant. But Jesus fulfilled them for us. He cleansed us through his fulfillment of the law. He was the perfect person. They're not, they haven't gone away. And Paul and the apostles teach or taught that we should obey the Ten Commandments. The false brothers taught that we should obey the Ten Commandments. So they taught the same thing. But their motives and their approach were diametrically opposed. One of them gives us freedom. The other one gives us slavery. Because if we make a choice... And that choice reduces our ability to connect with God, then we're in slavery. If somebody says, Jessica, you can't have a relationship with Jesus Christ until you clean up your act, get some decent clothes. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica would say, I have, some I have a really nice coat on. How can you say that? to me not only have i just imposed a rule which may affect her salvation in her own mind i've also put her under emotional slavery i've actually made her feel guilty about the fact that she can't come before god because there might be something wrong with her and so when we when we're looking at an idea that we need to get unified behind the idea of the church being in unity we need to look at the choices that we have and look at what freedom it brings us. See, moralistic religion tends to make its members adhere to certain rules. Because you don't, you don't want a rule like love your neighbour as yourself because that's really hard and it's a bit wishy-washy. Yeah, it involves making decisions daily it's not just having a rule uh, oh yeah the rule is love your neighbor as yourself good 
how do you follow that rule? Well, we could set, okay, you must knock on your neighbour's door every morning and say, hello, I'm your neighbour, I wish you well today. You could, you could make that a rule. That, that, that would, might be nice to your neighbour. But then, you know, what if it's a shift worker? You knock, <laughs> and after the fifth morning, he comes to the door with a gun. <laughs> See, rules can be dangerous. People want things like, okay, as a good Christian, don't go to the movies, don't drink alcohol, don't, th- don't eat this type of food, certainly on a Friday. Um, and all of these rules and regulations come in, which make us feel comfortable, but actually enslave us. You see, if the false teachers had their way, you couldn't become a Christian if you were Italian or African or Chinese or probably even Australian by this stage because you'd have to become culturally Jewish. All Christians around the world would have to form their little ghettos and learn Hebrew and, and become totally separate from other people because their culture wouldn't fit in line with what Christians should be. Think of how ridiculous that is. How many people here were not born in Australia? Okay, time we all left, I think. We just don't fit the mould. So, Christianity does not have any cultural restraints. If we understand the freedom in Christ, one of those freedoms is a cultural freedom. We are not called to conform to any particular cultural norm. If anybody tells you that you need to behave a certain way, eat certain foods to get your salvation, then they're trying to enslave you rather than free you. Now, that doesn't mean that as Christians we can eat any food we like and as much as we like. That would be silly. It's a freedom. But that doesn't affect our salvation. That just usually affects our BMI. So... Christianity contains a lot of common sense, which is why a lot of people aren't very good at it. Um, But uh, I'll pray for myself later, it's all right. So we've got cultural freedom. The other thing is emotional freedom. Because religion has a great way of making people feel guilty. Because Bill is a sinner. I hate to out him in a church service but Bill is a sinner in fact and do you know what the horrible thing about that is that Paul said Paul got at the front of his church and said you are all sinners and I am the chief sinner among you that's a pretty radical statement to make I'm glad he said it I wouldn't like to say that that would be a bit sort of confronting but that's the truth we are all sinners and we are all in a state where we're not perfect but the freeing thing about the gospel the emotional freedom we have in that is that it's not a freedom from doing the wrong thing because if we were free from that we would all be perfect isn't that right we could have sort of sort of sinners anonymous when was the last time you sinned? Oh, I haven't sinned for 365 days and <laughs> my last sin was just stealing a cup of coffee. And he, No, your last sin was probably about five minutes ago. And you'll probably do it again. It's not our, our sin 
that frees us. It's actually recognizing that Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross was for our sins. And that we don't have to feel guilty about our sins because we actually have a way to overcome them. Do you, do you understand the difference? Who's ever found that feeling guilty about something never moved them on? You just tend to wallow in it. And you never do anything about it. You just feel guilty. And if you feel guilty about something, guess what? You don't do anything. You don't want to talk to anybody about it because you're guilty. And you know that they'll say, ha, I knew you were a sinner. Or they'll say, oh, that's terrible. How, how can you be that sort of... We're afraid to open up for, in case of people's judgments. But if we're honest with ourselves, you know, and it's not a group exercise, but I challenge you to go out and find someone who's sinned worse than you have. <laughs> that would be a fun exercise, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, or you think that's bad. <laughs> you should have seen what... No, it's probably not a healthy thing to do. So we can see it's, it's, it's not just a question of what we do, it's the motivation behind what we do. The Ten Commandments aren't irrelevant for us as Christians but they don't relate to our salvation. Our salvation is accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that's it. And Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. And what were his last words on the cross? It wasn't, go and sin no more. It wasn't, you've been a naughty little boy. It was, it is finished. He has done everything that is necessary for our salvation. All we have to do is accept it. There are no extras. There are no, you can accept it, but you have to be circumcised. There are no, you have to accept it, but you have to tithe. There, are, there is no, you, have to, you can accept it, but you have to dress right. Or you'll lose your salvation if you drink alcohol. Or in some companies, in, in, in um, Netherlands, you can, you, you're taught that you can lose your salvation if you drink coffee. They serve beer after the service. In America, you can drink coffee, but alcohol is right out in conservative churches. You sort of think, well, who's right? Is it coffee or beer? In Australia, we drink both. <laughs> Except not after the service. <laughs> And why do we have that rule? Because Not because it affects your salvation, because it will affect your ability to drive a car. <laughs> and uh, if you're caught, it will affect it for a much longer time than you need. So, we need to recognise that the gospel provides freedom. It provides us with cultural freedom. It provides us with emotional freedom. But the false gospel gives us slavery. It binds us to rules and regulations that give us cultural and emotional bondage because we think there's something we can do to make ourselves pleasing to God. You can't. It's impossible. Don't even think about it. It's not even worth discussing. We cannot do anything except to accept that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour, and that he died for our sins, and that his resurrection and our acceptance of his lordship is all we need for salvation.
Who likes that idea? It's interesting. When Jesus spoke to the woman who was caught in adultery, he said two things to her. He said, if everybody else has stopped accusing you, don't look at me, I'm not going to accuse you. Then he said, go and sin no more. Now I can guarantee that if there have been any of us there, we would have said, okay, go and sin no more and I won't accuse you. Because we like people to behave properly before we say, oh, okay, if you behave, we'll, we'll, we'll forgive you. He said, no, I'm not your accuser. I love you unreservedly, without compromise. I love you. But here's an idea. Go sin no more. And that is what the freedom of the gospel does. It shows us that God's love for us is unconditional. But love does not leave you where you are. And we're called to be together, to be unified behind a gospel that brings us freedom. We are called to be together for a gospel that does not differentiate between people because of their cultural differences and does not impose emotional blackmail on anyone. That is what unity God blesses as opposed to unity that we manufacture. Can I ask you to stand? Guilt is a very destructive emotion. And I think it's one of the things that afflicts our, our modern life uh, to a large degree. And I believe it's one of the things that God just, He'd like to stamp out entirely from our lives because it is actually self destructive. And it's something that stops us from fulfilling the potential that is in us, that God has placed and breathed life into. So I, I want to pray this morning to break that feeling of guilt in people's lives. I was thinking of calling people out on the altar, but I suspect it would fill <laughs> if we were all honest because we all suffer from guilt. We all beat ourselves up more than anybody else ever would. Oh, hang on. Hang it. Just come out on the altar. Come on. Everybody who wants to be free of guilt, everybody who wants a, a, a new attitude in life, anybody who wants to leave the past behind, to stop dragging along things that they've have held them back people who want to change their attitudes their op their inhibitions their their attitudes towards life come on I can't believe that there's only, only people. it's only
It's not a weakness to feel, but it does take strength to actually admit that we can do better. It's not like a change of direction. This is just an enlargement of our heart. Guilt is like eating, drinking lemon juice. It sort of shrivels you up a little bit. We need to be expanding people. We need to be releasing our hearts. Squeeze up a little, you guys. Come on, Nick. Let's curl this, bit. Let's curl this end round a bit. So that's it, yeah, and that end. So bring, bring it round. That's it. Now let Susan in. She's just peeking through the through the gap there. everybody here in this in this room let's just lift our hands to heaven mighty God we stand before you in an attitude of praise an attitude of thanksgiving Lord we ask you to fill us this morning right now with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you to wash away the bondage in our hearts, the chains that hold us back, the things we hold on to that you want released. Right now we release guilt, shame, uncertainty, fear, Holy Spirit, wash them away. Lord, expand our hearts this morning. Allow us to move forward without fear of condemnation. As we leave behind everything that's held us back. your holy children. We thank you for your blessing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, you can take your seats again. In fact, you don't even have to take the same ones. You can have a different one. Don't feel guilty. We can just quickly sit down again before we finish I just want to give people an opportunity to live a life that is free in Christ we must first accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour now luckily for us there are no rules when it comes to this freedom in Jesus Christ is obtained by acknowledgement of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And like any 
any relationship we have, it starts with an introduction. When we meet people, we... Hi, Brendan, I'm Chris. Actually, that was a bit wrong because I meant I knew his name. <laughs> but we, we start a relationship with dialogue. And it's the same with Jesus. When we make a decision to have a relationship with him, it starts with a dialogue. And we actually have to say, Jesus, I come before you. I don't know you, but I want to get to know you. I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. Please come into my heart. And that opens the door to, to a road where we actually walk with Jesus, building a relationship with him. But it's the door to our salvation, and it's the only door. You don't have to be dressed in a particular way to do that. You don't have to speak a particular language. So can I get everybody just to close their eyes for a moment? And if you're here this morning, and you have never introduced yourself to Jesus Christ, you have never asked him into your heart to be your Lord as well as your Saviour, then I want to offer you that opportunity right now. I'd love to pray with you. And so what I'd ask you to do is, while nobody's looking around, if you wouldn't raise your hand, I'll acknowledge that hand, you can pop it down and we can pray together to introduce Jesus into your life. Is there anybody here who wants to do that this morning? Raise your hand nice and high so I can see it. And I'll pray with you to introduce Jesus into your life. Anyone at all? Excellent. Open your eyes. Let's quickly stand. I want to finish with prayer. And I want you to pray with me. Dear Lord, I am your child. I am guilt-free, I am culturally free, but I am not a slave to any law, but I am a slave to you. I thank you that my destiny is in your hands, and I rejoice in my future, in Jesus' name, amen. You have an absolutely fabulous day fabulous week.